0: Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org.
1: Judges is one of the most violent and bloody books in the Bible. It is not a moral manual or a story about role models, but rather a tragic narrative about Israel's moral corruption and God's continued commitment to saving his people. The tragedy here lies in the overwhelming corruption and depravity of our human condition. Despite being loved and sought after by the king of all kings, Israel's cycle of rebellion remains unbroken. Israel rebels. God allows them to be conquered and oppressed. Israel cries out and repents. God sends a judge to deliver them. There would be an era of peace But eventually Israel would sin and the cycle would start over. This is the rhythm of Judges. God has called his people to be a holy people. And instead of remaining faithful to the law and showing all the other nations who God is and what he is like, they become no different from those who dishonor God. They did what was right in their own eyes. As time goes on, these Judges, or rulers of the people, become more and When we define what is good, we hit rock bottom. The book ends with a phrase that is repeated four times. In those days Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They have no king. Nobody to unite them and bring them out of their cycle of corruption. They need to be rescued. They need a king who can rescue them from themselves. The book of Judges not only points to King David, but points to our ultimate king, the one who can rescue us fully, Jesus.
0: If you would turn to the book of Judges, we're finishing Judges today, give you guys a little down of where we're headed. Next week, we're going to look at Ephesians 4. You can read ahead on that. We're going to look at um, the church and what it looks like to be a part of the church. And then the following week, uh, Mark McKay, who did some uh, prep work for Judges 10 uh, and then wasn't able to preach that uh, due to his uh, father passing away, is going to come and preach Judges 10 for us. And so that's where we're headed. So uh, Ephesians 4 and then Judges 10. But today, we're covering this big chunk, Judges 19 through 21. It's a not only a big chunk, it's dark. So I'm just telling you guys that We announced last week. If you have kiddos, just know, if if they're in here, this is the darkest, probably chapter in the whole Bible. So, Judges chapter 19. Let's pray and we'll dive in. Father, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for our church family. I'm thankful for those that call GCC their home and family. I'm thankful uh, that you're raising up men to shepherd, lead, love, and serve the church. We thank you for. Uh, Just those here today, we thank you for those that call uh, GCC their home and family that aren't with us today. Um, Father, we pray right now for anyone in this room uh, today that is just hurting, grieving, suffering, in pain in some way, God, that you would minister to their souls. Father, that you would bring encouragement to them through your word, through what you've done through Christ, through the power of your spirit. Father, we pray for those that are celebrating as a church family, we could celebrate with them. We pray that we would have joy and that our joy wouldn't come from the circumstances of life, but our joy would come from Jesus. God, our joy would come from knowing that you are good. I pray that we wouldn't just know with our heads and spout with our lips that you're good, but our hearts would actually rest in the fact that we serve a good God. Father, I pray specifically right now for the Carters. I pray for Valerie Carter. She's um, getting ready to undergo surgery. Um, God, I pray you would give their family peace in this season. Give them an abundance of peace that they can't explain other than that it comes from you and from your goodness. Keep Hannah safe as she is away with Valerie right now in this season. Let us as a church family come alongside of them and love, serve, and encourage them in this season, God. We declare our need for you. Uh, Father, we thank you that you have spoken, that you've spoken through your word, that it's uh, not just something that has been uh, spoken that doesn't have power, but it actually is your word that ha- has a power and authority to transform our hearts and lives. Do that today, please. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Judges Amen. chapter 19 through 21. I want you to walk away with this main point, which is going to sound really bizarre, okay? Just, just a preface that's nacho, like nacho cheese, that's nacho stuff, okay? Let me explain where this comes from. Several years ago, I was at uh, some, some, some fights, some MMA fights. And as I've told some of you guys, I have a close dear friend of mine who, who professes to be an atheist. His name is Diesel, okay? His real name is Chuck. I don't know where Diesel came from. That's, that's what we call him. And so Chuck was at some fights and Uh, Chuck took it upon himself to give some advice from the crowd to someone who was fighting. So there was a guy inside of the ring, inside of the cage, he was fighting that night, and his nickname was Nacho, okay? Nacho was getting pummeled, (laughs) I mean pummeled silly. And he was trying every move, and so nothing was working. So my buddy Chuck, who sometimes listens to our sermons, I hope he listens to this one, Chuck took it upon himself to scream at him this, that's Nacho move, and he kept screaming that, over and over and over again, trying to explain to him that's not your move because that move ain't working. And so this is what he screamed for about a minute of the fight. And I can't Ever hear Nacho without thinking about Chuck screaming? That's Nacho move. That's Nacho stuff. That's not something you should be doing. And so this morning, what I want us to get stuck in our heads is when we look at the tail end of Judges, when we look at the nation of Israel, is we can see that's Nacho stuff. In in regard to this, they are making stuff belong to them. They are taking ownership of stuff that isn't theirs, and they're finding their identity in it. And what they're doing is they're hiding in these things. They're hiding in and behind an image that they have created and built. This hiding goes back to Genesis 3. If you read Genesis 1, 2, and then 3, what you'll see is Adam and Eve sin, and we call this the fall of humanity. What they do as soon as they sin is they go and find fig leaves and they cover themselves up so they can hide. And and it says that the man and the woman were hiding. They hid themselves, okay? God comes to them and he finds them hiding. God pursues them and calls them out of hiding. Since then, since the fall of mankind, we have not just taken fig leaves. We've taken everything else in life to find uh, things to hide behind and hide in. And so what I would say, that's nacho stuff. What I would also say, just to go with that, is that you will either hide in what is nacho stuff, or you will hide in what is. In other words, you will hide in the stuff that's going to wear you out, or you will hide and abide in what belongs to you in Christ. So you're either going to hide and abide in the stuff that will wear you out and exhaust you, or you will hide and abide in what belongs to you in Christ. So with that, we're going to see this. As we cover these three chapters, there's just a lot of facade. There's not a lot of realness. We're going to see a tremendous amount of brokenness, but it doesn't shock me. Why? Because throughout the entire book of Judges, God has been doing something. He's calling his people back to him. He's using these judges that are military rulers to call them back, to, to, to speak truth to them, to share with them how they should be living. And over and over and over again, they reject it. And, and what we see at the end of the book is this. They decide to do what's right in their own eyes. And we get to see where this leads. And this is my frustration if you're here Christian or not a Christian, is we so often see people decide to go rogue and live life however they want, adopt their own ways of purity and everything else like that. And when things go bad, then they get frustrated with God, though they've abandoned the way that God has lined out life to be lived. So with that, we'll jump in. There's no way, no way we can read through all of this. And so I'm gonna try to do my best to to explain what's going on while we read through it. So Judges 19, verse one. In those days when there was no king in Israel, pause. That's a theme that's been happening. Looked at that twice last week, and it's happening here. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him. And she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and was there some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day, they arose early in the morning and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, be pleased to spend the night and let your hearts be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day, he arose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your hearts be merry, and tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. Okay, what's happening here is this. is now we get to the end of the book of Judges and we're noticing that there's nameless people like this man who's from Ephraim and he's from the hill country. He's a Levite. We don't know much about him. What is the author's point in doing this? Once there were names, now it seems like names are being removed. It's because what the author's showing you is now that this person represents at large the nation of Israel. So now uh, now they're nameless because this person is kind of just showing as a whole, this is how the nation of Israel is operating. And so there's this man, he's a Levite. We learn a little bit about him. He has a servant and he has a concubine. If you're not familiar what concubines are, they were for pleasure, specifically sexual pleasure. And so you, you had them whenever you were typically wealthy and you might have had like your wife uh, for uh, procreation and whatnot. And then you might have had your concubine for sexual pleasure. We even see King Solomon had a lot of concubines. We see David had a lot of concubines, but what they were is they were treated like a piece of property for sexual pleasure for a man. So he has a servant, he has some donkeys, he's got a little bit of money, okay? And then what happens is his concubine is unfaithful, so she leaves him and she goes off. And then after some four months... Clearly, he doesn't have a ton of love and, and, and compassion for her. He's, he's not pursuing her right away. Some four months go by. Maybe he's missing his concubine for whatever reasons. And then he goes, I'm going to go after her. So he goes to her father's house where she's at. And he's met with joy. Why? This is a shame culture. Here's what could happen. She could be killed for her adultery. And the father's family, including himself, would be really, really shamed for what had happened. So he wants to bring him in and he wants to reconcile things. And so what we need to see here is this isn't actually something that's driven by this overwhelming delight and love that this man has. It's that he wants to reconcile things with this man because he doesn't want his name to be buried in the ground. And he doesn't want his daughter to be given over to death. And so he's like, no, 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 keep staying, keep staying, keep staying. And oftentimes the things that we will do is this, is it's not that he's driven by this overwhelming love for his daughter necessarily, but it's an overwhelming drive to protect his name and protect his identity and, and not get buried. And so he just wants to keep inviting him in, inviting him, giving him food and giving him food until finally the man, the Levite says, no, 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 this is enough. It's time for us to go. And so they decide to go. What you are starting to see though is the author's painting this picture. You're starting to see that this man has some wealth, which is important. And what you're also starting to see is, that there's these people that care more about their image and upholding that than what they actually should be caring about, a love for God and a love for people, okay? And honestly, if we're being honest with ourselves, do we not discipline sometimes our kids out of this, out of a love to, to, to look good and protect our image more than out of a love for our kids? I've shared with you guys this story before, but a while back I was at Starbucks and one of my daughters ran off, And she ran off, and she was around like some elderly women, and she uh, she started to like lick the pole. And I was, don't lick the pole, you know, and like I'm trying to be cool. And she looks at me, and then like puts her tongue out, then licks the pole, and I'm like, I went over and grabbed her, right? And what every proud father would do, I grabbed her and I said, there's not much you can do when you're only the babysitter, right? And I walked away with her, okay? In that moment. I was so concerned what these women thought that I was just like, this will be kind of funny. And But really, I was like, I care about what they think about me. Even yesterday, we had our friends Brad and Jenna over. And uh, one of our daughters was just having an all-out tantrum. And I, I went up there, and I was like, we have friends over. They're listening to you. My care in that moment, I hate even saying that. My care in that moment was more for the fact of how I'm being made to look than it was for my own daughter. I wasn't trying to shepherd her heart, shepherd what's going on in her heart. I'm like, you're making me look bad, and that's what I care about. And oftentimes, sadly... That's the stuff that we make ours. We make this image out to be ours that, that our kids are somehow this ultimate reflection of our parenting, this ultimate reflection of like that we know how to gospel our kids well and we're doing all that and we make that our priority. In a lot of ways, that just our kids will buckle underneath that pressure. And who knows, maybe if we knew the backstory of this woman, maybe this woman, maybe this daughter, someone who has buckled underneath that sort of pressure in her life. What happens next is this is this man and his servant and his concubine and their donkeys, they, they, they get up, they leave. They pass through a town named Jabus. okay? You can see that in verse 10, we won't look at it. One of his, or his servant goes, let's stay here. And, and uh, the, the Levite's like, nah, 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 nah. "No, no, no, no. Now, this town is not occupied by Israelites. It's occupied by Canaanites. We don't wanna stay here, it's not safe. And so he has some knowledge to go, this isn't a place that we should stay. However, it should have been occupied by Israelites if they would have listened to God in Judges chapter one but they chose not to. And so we see what he says as he goes on to say, let's go to Gibeah, we'll stay at Gibeah. Gibeah is gonna be a safer place to stay because they're the Israelites live." So that's what they do. They keep going to, uh, to Gibeah. When they're in the city of Gibeah, which you see that throughout the rest of this uh, section here up until verse 21, you realize something. No one meets them. So they're in an Israelite town. They're in the city square, the center. No one comes to meet them, which is already a bit alarming except some older man. And he comes up to them and says, you're more than welcome to stay with me. Please do me one favor. Don't stay in the town square. Don't stay in the city center. Instead, come to my house. I'll take care of all your needs. So that's what they do. They go to this man's house. Let's read on in verse 22. As they were there in this man's house, making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man, who came into your house, that we may know him. This is so that we may have sex with him, okay? 23, and the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. So true. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as the morning appeared, the woman came and fell at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. What happened? First, the author's purposely give, giving us a picture of Sodom and Gomorrah on purpose. We, we see a very similar thing happen in Sodom and Gomorrah where they want to, um, to uh, have men of the town come in and rape these men. And, and the angel in Sodom and Gomorrah blinds them. In this case, the Levite and the man of the house are like, don't, don't do this vile thing. Instead, we see how gross and evil these guys are. They said, instead, take my virgin daughter and have your way with her. In fact, take his concubine and have your way with her. That's what the men do. All night, what they do is gang rape this this woman. And why would a man give up another woman like this? Because he sees her as nothing more than property. They, they, they have abandoned Genesis 1 and 2, where it says that man, male, and female were created in God's image. And in this patriarchal society, they said women in this role are nothing more than a piece of property. It's gross. In fact, uh, one Bible scholar named Tim Mackie, maybe you, some of you are familiar with him. I know when his, when his wife read the tale in a judge, she threw her Bible because she didn't know what to do with it because the story is so horrific. What the author is actually trying to get us to do a little bit is just see maybe just see and maybe just fathom, maybe grasp a little bit that when you abandon whatever God says, whatever he lays out, and you have, to, you have to hear this. When he's a good God who created human life out of his goodness and out of his love and he lays out for us, this is how life will work best. And we say, no thanks. We start to see this is what happens when, 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 when uh, morality just tanks. That's what's happened here. Morals are thrown out the window, all, like just all across the board. And it's this horrific, tragic, awful, gross story. Like, I just want to whoop the man. Like, a, like, a, like, the man who gives up his daughter, the man who gives up his concubine, like, like it just righteously, like, it ticks me off. And that's, that's what it should do in us. It should stir up a sense of justice to go, like, this is gross. This is vile. This is sinful. This is wrong. And we should go, exactly, exactly. We have an acute sense of justice. Even my daughter does. Recently, a raccoon killed one of her chickens. And, and I was like, she cried. I know that's not a, a big deal to some of you or to me, but I was like, okay, this is a big deal to her, okay? So I'll meet her where she's at. So they're both crying, okay? And so I'm like, let's go get a trap. We're gonna trap this bad boy, okay? And I was like, when dad traps it, do you want me to take it out in the woods and release it? And she's like, no, I don't, I don't think so eye for an eye she wants capital punishment so we 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 have to we have to ask this what in us makes us go this is so wrong and it's and and, and i think the answer is very simple christian or non-christian here today we know in the depths of our soul what is right and what is wrong israel should have known what is right and what is wrong god had laid it out for him in his word God had made them his covenant chosen people. God had poured out his blessing all over the nation of Israel. And here's what we see and here's what the author's trying to do. They're no different than Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, in a lot of ways, they're worse. Isn't that a tragedy? Like th- that's what he's showing. Like this, this, is, this is very much a picture and a parallel to Sodom and Gomorrah that God's chosen beloved people that he takes delight in, that he's given his covenant to, that, that he's given his law to, Look no different than Sodom and Gomorrah. They should be destroyed as Sodom and Gomorrah was. When we hit Sodom and Gomorrah, that was the end, right? We hit this story, somehow it keeps going. What do we do with that? What do we do with that? Look here at 27. It gets worse. And her master rose up. Just ticks me off. He gave up his concubine. He had donkeys, he had wealth. His servant, he had many things that he could have given up and maybe sacrificed and laid out, but instead he just gives up this woman. And he goes in, inside and sleeps. And then verse 27 tells us, then he rises up in the morning. And when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go his own way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with their hands on the threshold, reaching to get in. That like, is That is gross. He said to her, get up. In a sense, get your stuff and let's get going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her up limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day, consider it, take counsel, and speak. It's vile and gross. And whatever you feel, know that a perfectly clean, holy, and just God feels it infinitely more. Which is why I believe when Jesus stepped into humanity, one of the, sh- or the shortest verse we have in the Bible is that Jesus wept over his friend Lazarus that died. But before that, twice, it says that he was deeply moved. Jesus got to see the ramifications of what sin does. It kills us internally, but then it also kills us physically. And it broke his heart. This breaks his heart. This is not the Bible condoning behavior. This is behavior that is gross and sinful in the sight of God. This is why, this is why Jesus stepped into humanity. This is why he came. He, he, like I said, whatever you're feeling, we as broken, fallen people feel a sense of this. God feels it so much more. It breaks him. He was moved. And this is what moved Christ to step in. And I want to say this. When we said, you you, you will either hide in what's not your stuff, or you will hide in Christ. I want to say this. Maybe you're someone in this room. Maybe you're someone listening who's had something vile done to you. And as your pastor, I would say, man, I'm sorry That breaks my heart. But what I need you to know is this. Is it also what Christ does when he comes to rescue? When Christ comes to heal and cleanse and give a new identity? Is he doesn't just take the stuff that you have done. He also takes the stuff that's been done to you. And and he defines you by what he has done for you. He makes you clean. He makes you pure. We're going to see that in just a minute. And so the thing that does belong to you now is not what's been done to you, but what Christ has done and given to you. Let's keep reading. Chapter 20 cuts up the body. A Jew should never do that. You don't play with dead bodies. Anyone that's familiar with the book of Leviticus would know that. Chapter 20, through this one horrific death, the nation of Israel starts to unite. Okay? They start to unite. Here's what's really, 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 I mean, such a bummer. They should have united as one tribe and people at the beginning of the book of Judges because God said, hey, just know, here's the nation of. Canaan, here are the Canaanites. You're either going to do one of two things. You're going to adopt their lifestyle and it's going to overwhelm you or you can get rid of it. And and they're like, eh, we won't do that. But now this thing happens and they're like, we're going to come together for this. And so watch here. Here's a man who knows how to protect his image, okay? Jump down because he's got the whole, almost all of Israel assembled, okay? Look at verse four, chapter 20. And the Levite, okay, the husband of the woman who was murdered answered and said, here's here's his version. I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I, and my concubine to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose up against me, not true, and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, not true, and they violated my concubine and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. Man, so what they wanted to do, and, and again, I, I'm sorry for brash language, but, but it's what's taking place. What they wanted to do is rape him and they wanted the men. What, what, what he doesn't tell them is the truth <laughs> is it was a few worthless fellows from, from Gibeah. It doesn't say that it was the leaders, and then what he never says, and he never alludes to, because what we want to do is we want to keep a good, clean front in front of people so they have such a high view of who we are, which, is, which just goes against the whole message of Christianity is that you're broken, come as you are, God takes you at that spot, and then he cleans you up. But what he wants to do is, is put his best foot forward, and he wants to look really good. So he's like, yeah. And you know, the, the other just sad thing is he's not even actually coming with rage about what was done to her. He's coming with rage because he's lost his property. And, and, and then he tells his story and he paints himself in such a good light because he's hiding in the really good things that, um, that, that he has done or trying to make himself look really good. This is Romans 1, 2, and 3 basically summarized here. Let me explain. Romans 1 talks about the egregious immorality that's happening where people trade what God has set out for what they want to do. But then Romans 2 also goes over the egregious self-righteousness, that there are others that think because they have an external exterior that looks really pretty that that makes them righteous. And then chapter 3 says, actually, there's no unrighteous, not even one. So you have this immoral, egregious sin you have this self-righteousness, which we're seeing here. And then you have the understanding that there's no one righteous not a single person. Let, let me pose this challenge this morning. What front are you putting in front of people that you're hiding behind, that in time is going to exhaust you and wear you out? What are you not being real about? What are you not being honest about? Where's where there sin in your life where you smash that down, cover that up, and then you have a pretty facade? This was my struggle with Christianity for so long. It really was. This was my struggle with Christians and Christianity is it seemed like such a front, your Sunday best and all this stuff instead of just owning and admitting that we are broken, sinful people. We don't wanna self-reflect on that. We want people to look at this and see this. And the last thing we'd ever want to do is for someone to tear down this beautiful, pretty image that we have of our lives and actually get to see the mess that we are underneath that. We are no different in a lot of ways than what this man is doing here. We present a story the way we want people to view us. And we hide behind that story. And we hide behind our own self-righteousness, so much so that it will exhaust you. There is sin that goes on in people's lives. Lust, pornography, pride, drunkenness, all these things that left unchecked while you're trying to put up a pretty facade will kill you. What happens? The nation of Israel is like, these people stink. Let's kill them. And so that's what they do. But first they send out to the tribe of Benjamin. Guys, I'm realizing what time it is and how much we have left. And so you're getting ready to get even a little bit more of a fast forward version, okay? They go in chapter 20, in verse 12, and, and they say, hey, give us your people that have done this foul thing. Benjamin has more love, more love for their own people than they do for what is right and wrong. Their, their, their tie to kindred is stronger than their tie to covenant. In a lot of ways, we see this in our culture today. People, people have more conviction, more compassion, and more tied to their political party than they do to Christ the king. And so whenever they're said, bring these guys out, they're like, no, 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 we're not doing that. And so what they do is they plan an attack. This is what happens in the rest of chapter 20. They're like, we're going up against them. Who should go? Lord says, send Judah. They get their butts kicked. And then they come back and they're weeping. They're crying. They're like, why would you let this happen to us? And they're like, should we go again? And God's like, yeah, go again. And they get their butts kicked again. Because not every place that God calls us to in life is going to be success by the way we've determined it. In fact, God brought them to a place to bring them to their knees in utter dependence and say, we can't do this. That was the greatest gift God could give them. He didn't say, I'm not gonna be with you. He said, go. He didn't promise victory. He said, go. And sometimes the only reason we go is because we want some sort of success that we can hide ourselves in. But sometimes God's calling us places to strip down every bit of success that we can try to tie ourselves to. That's what happens in 21 because he doesn't want us to hide in that. He wants us to learn what it is to abide in him. At the end of chapter 20, if you will read with me, verse 48 says this, and the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, men and beasts and all that they found, and all the towns that they found, they set on fire. Listen, they didn't just kill those men. This is not eye for an eye. This is eye for both eyes, eye for an entire body. Why? This is what happens whenever bitterness takes root in our lives. The other thing I would say that's not not nacho stuff is bitterness, is unforgiveness, which is why Scripture calls us to forgive. The reason why God doesn't want the poison of bitterness and unforgiveness inside of our souls is because it destroys us. This is why Jesus says, but if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you for yours. This is why he also says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Maybe you're in here today and, and bitterness is taking root in your life. Bitterness grows and it develops into being vindictive. And so that's something that we don't have to uh, let, lay claim to our life. Chapter 21, what happens? We see this. We would hope that somehow it might get better and it does not. In fact, they, they actually go and, and make this statement They go, God, how could you let this happen? They're grieving because now the tribe of Benjamin has almost been completely wiped out and they have no women and children because they burned their entire city, women and children and all. And so now they're like, God, how could you let this happen? Do you hear the self-righteousness in their statement? God, how could you let something like this happen? Like there's no ownership. Sometimes the most self-righteous statements we can make or say is, is, why would this happen to me? How does that happen to a good person? Or I can't believe I did this. How can you not believe that you're as broken and fallen as the word of God tells you that you are? So they cry out and they come up with this real great plan is is what they think. Oh, remember the tribe of Jabesh Galid? They didn't show up. You know what we should do? We should go kill all of them and then we'll take the virgins and we'll give them to the tribe of Benjamin. That's what they do. That's their plan. Like they're so committed to their oath and to their principles that they're not even committed to God's word anymore. And then they go, dang it, there's still 200 men that don't have wives. So they wait until Shiloh has this party and they're out dancing. They're like, I know, so that we don't have to give our wives to Benjamin because that's what we made an oath to do. And to the tribe of Benjamin, what we'll do is we'll send out people to steal them. So technically we're not giving them, they're just stealing them and the fathers didn't give permission for this. This is their plan. It's really, really awful. That's what they do. They steal these women. They, they treat them like property. And in verse 25, read with me at the end of chapter 21. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It repeats it. The book is setting you up to go, my goodness, the nation of Israel needs a king. And in fact, as we talked about a little bit last week, we get to see that King Saul is the first king that comes up in 1 Samuel chapter 10. Where is he from? He's from Gibeah. Okay? Where, what is he doing when they find him? He's literally hiding. He's hiding behind baggage. The, the king that they need actually comes from Bethlehem, from Judah. That's David. But then what we actually start to see is that they don't need a king to do just what kings do from an earthly standpoint. Kings protected people. What they did is they guarded, protected people in cities and brought military rule and provision. What they also needed was this. They needed a king, they needed a prophet, and they needed a priest. There is only one person who has functioned perfectly as a prophet, priest, king, and his name is Jesus. What did prophets do? They weren't just foretellers. They were foretellers, calling God's people back to God's ways. A priest mediated, so he stood in between an unholy people and a holy God, and he made sacrifices. When Christ came, he said, there's no more sacrifices of animals, this ongoing sacrifice. In fact, I'm not going to lay something on the altar other than myself. The only way to reconcile broken humanity is through the perfect priest, the eternal priest. We don't just need a king who can set up military power and overthrow the enemies. What they needed was a king to cleanse them. What Israel couldn't see and what sometimes we can't see is our greatest enemy is not the world out there. It's actually ourselves. What we need is not just some external cleaning. We need the king himself to cleanse us from the inside, which is where I'll I'll take us today. I love this. You guys can look later. You guys can underline it. I would highly encourage that. But when Jesus comes, this is what he says to his disciples in John 15, where where this whole section is about abiding in him. He says this, John 15, three, already, listen, already you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Think about that. Already you are clean. He's not saying do these things and then you will become clean. He's saying already you are clean because of what I've declared to you. We are made clean not by cleaning ourselves up. We are made clean by the work that Christ did and declared finished from the cross. We could have been crushed. We should have been crushed. We should have been shattered. We should have absorbed God's wrath for all of our sin. But instead, Christ said, I will take it upon myself. It's finished. We don't have to hide in this good life that we can try to put forth before God. Instead, we get to hide in the life that Christ lived before us. We don't have to try to put off all the sin that we're ashamed of. Instead, we can declare those sins because they've been taken to the cross, nailed there, and then buried in a tomb to be forgotten he makes us clean. I'll ask you this. How do you view yourself right now? And how do you think that God views you? How do you view yourself? How do you think that God views you? Because I can tell you, according to scripture, that's divine and authoritative, that if you've put your trust and faith in Jesus, you can't possibly make yourself more clean than you are. You are just as clean as holy Jesus Christ himself was and is today. You also need to abide in this and hide in this. He says in verse nine, as the fathers loved me, so I have loved you. Abide, remain, accept, stay in my love. And he says, all these things I've spoken you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. I'm gonna close up with these things here. Our natural tendency in life is to hide. And take other things that we have done or that have been done to us and attach them to us to give us worth. And I'm saying that's not just stuff. What is yours to hide in, to abide in? What Christ says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And He says, take, take my righteousness, take my yoke, take my love, take my clean, just my perfectly clean state and make that yours. That's yours. It's a gift. What we need to see as we finish this book, the book of Judges, is, oh my goodness, how much grace does God have for his people? God starts a work in us. God will stay faithful to the work in us, not because of our goodness, but because of his grace and his goodness. I would assume that when this book ends, it would close and God would wash his hands with such a gross and vile people, and God says, no way, I made a promise to save them, to spare them, to redeem them. And that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring my son to do just that. And that's what God promises for us. Save, spare, redeem, and continue to make us clean. When we sin, when we fall short, God is constantly at work to make us clean, to see us as though we are clean because of the work that his son has done for us. Three things that we need. Community. We don't just announce community because it's something just cool and cute. We actually know this, that the safest place that Christians can live in a place where we remind one another of what's not your stuff and what is. What you're hiding behind and what's actually belongs to you. In the same way a title to a car or a house can belong to you, legally, the perfection and cleanness and righteousness of Jesus is yours, like all of it. And we need a community that reminds us of that. We need confession, honest confession. We need to stop hiding and get real with what's broken in our lives, where we're hurting. And last, what we need to do is live in such a way that invites other people to come in and see who Christ is and what he's like. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, you've sent your son to make us clean. As we celebrate communion, that's what we're celebrating, that we're clean. That we're washed pure, holy and innocent, and we thank you for that. Father, help us. To remember that, to celebrate that, and to live
1: lives rejoicing from that. In Jesus' name, amen.